police started coming, they started lining up, right? And they would do this thing, they would wait till the media left, where they would, then they would hurt people. So the police started lining up, and at least one or two of them got those long wooden bullet clubs that looked like South Africa to me. So I went, darted out, and kneeled down and prayed, right? I didn't know what else to do, right? You know, they promptly and unceremoniously picked me up and threw me in the back of a blood-stained car. So they had beat someone, and they were, and so I'm in the back of a blood-stained uh, police van, right? But they were so hastily putting me in the van that they didn't frisk me, so I had my phone. So I took pictures and that kind of thing. And the young people wouldn't leave. They said, we're not leaving until you give us our preacher back. And that's the night I was born again. Listening to Conversations with Shonda, a podcast and event series hosted by Shonda Smith Baker. Through this podcast, the Minneapolis Foundation is leading our community on a tough but revealing path of discovery and civic action. I grew up singing in a church. Um, my grandmother in rural, in Zen, Arkansas, in the rural Arkansas, the Delta, thought it was important that I had voice lessons because I sang. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I was six or seven, I sang in five foreign languages. Um, I, you know, I was in performance choirs. I sang in high school. And I started off college at a small historically black college, Knoxville College in Knoxville, Tennessee, on a vocal performing scholarship. And I also, I, I'm 49, so I'm old enough to be at a point where African-Americans went and got PhDs in music, but couldn't teach in white schools. So they came back and taught in high schools and in, uh, and in black colleges. So, you know, Delo Thetford, uh, Charles Gladney, right? So I was around folks who had been trained in the classical arts, who came out of the black tradition of music, uh, but who had a real serious investment uh, in continuing a legacy uh, of music. So I was around some of the best teachers uh, in music. Went to college on a vocal performance scholarship, and I just wasn't good as the other guys. I mean, just, and, and, and women, right? So I'm Kenny Springs, or uh, there's a gentleman in St. Louis named Kenny uh, Lester. I watched him change keys seven times <laughs> in a song, mm -hmm. right? So I was, a, and I just wasn't as good as them, to be honest. And, uh, and then I got politicized in uh, college. Uh, and so I kind of went away from singing. Of course, I always sang. I was in a college band called Collage. I was in this terrible Afro-punk uh, fusion, mm. punk hip-hop fusion band uh, called Africa Spelled with a K. Mm. We were oh, God. the 80s. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we were spelled with a K. Oh, oh, God, we were so terrible. I pray to God there are no pictures of me <laughs> from in that era with my tie-dye. Anyway, um, and patchouli. Uh, and patchouli. Oh. <laughs> so so you believe in, in music's power to, to heal, yeah. to educate, to change, to inspire? It's been really interesting to me that I wound up coming back to music. I threatened to do a record for 10 years. There's a woman named Anasa Troutman who actually discovered India Irie. 
And she ran a label called Groovement uh, uh, out of uh, Atlanta in the the mid-90s when the kind of burgeoning uh, neo-soul movement. And so I've been talking to Anasa. I've been threatening to do a record for 10 years and then Ferguson, but then Ferguson happened. And so after a year of um, being in the streets, arrested four times, facing up to a year in prison, going to trial, I just had the blues. Mm-hmm. And so I just jumped on a plane and I went to San Francisco. I went to the Bay Area where my friend has a house. I could kind of chill out. And I met a young person named Jay Marie Hill. So Jay and I met, had already, we had met earlier at the convening for the movement for Black Lives. I watched pepper spray off of them mm-hmm. at a, from a protest. We didn't talk. I just watched it off them and then went on about my business. So we met again in the Bay Area and we uh, wrote 11 songs in six days, Record, did a show in the ninth day. Mm-hmm. I raised some money. We um, did a record and went on tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we toured that record for about a year and then I got offered a solo deal. Uh, and so I took that deal. The North Mississippi All Stars uh, produced that record. We recorded it in uh, at Zebra Ranch, mm-hmm. which is a studio. This is where Aretha Franklin and the Rolling Stones is this a barn in the backwoods of North Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, their father with their father Jim Dickinson, and then they took me on tour with them. So I toured the world. I toured the U- U.S. and the U.K. with them. Incredible. And so, so, so I, I got into the music game and then once we did the tiny desk, I went from being an activist who does music to like, the, oh, he's a serious musician. Yeah. Um, and so that transition, uh, and I've just seen music impact people's lives in a way that my speech defying and organizing or books for that matter have not, uh, and it's been quite powerful. Mm-hmm. There's not a point ever that I would be arrested and talk about it in the matter of fact way that you just did. Mm -hmm. So in Ferguson, you showed up there. Why? Well, so I went to high school in St. Louis. Uh, So my family started migrating there in 1952 and fleeing the Jim Crow South in search for decent and living wages because there's factories. So there was uh, Boeing, uh, Monsanto, uh, Chrysler. There were places they could go and get decent living wages by virtue of a strong union movement, as well as fleeing the legacy of white supremacy that was the Jim Crow South and American apartheid. So when my grandmother died, I subsequently followed my aunts and uncles to St. Louis when I was 14. So I'd gone to high school there. Uh, I was actually at Stanford doing a visiting residency in the King paper. So I had spent six weeks studying King's late life. Particularly, uh, you know, Trayvon is ha- had happened in 2013 in terms of the trial. So I'm interested in how does King respond to police brutality and that kind of thing. So, and somehow uh, King's greatest, uh, his longest interview is in Playboy magazine, January 19, I think, 65 or 66. And it's just because the Playboy interviewer wouldn't leave him alone. And so, and he says his long, and so Kink, for some reason, is super self-reflective. So he talks about all of his mistakes. So I'm watching this, and then I get a text from my a colleague uh, who's saying, have you paid attention to what's going on in St. Louis? And so I start checking social media, and I start getting texts. When are you coming home? I didn't think much was going to happen. St. Louis doesn't have, like, a, a strong, radical history in my memory. And so 
that was on, he got killed on a Saturday, Thursday, I was on a plane home. Hmm. In between those times, right, I had been trained at the Highlander Center. Mm-hmm. I'm a child of SNCC. I've been named and worked with Stokely Car- Kwame Toure, Stokely Carmichael. So I had the record skills. I was tutored by James Lawson, who Martin Luther King calls the greatest juridician of nonviolence in the world three days before he's assassinated. So I had the requisite skills, and I had done organizing around the country. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I had the requisite skills, and so I went because, uh, you know, folks were saying, when are you coming home? So I went home. And then when you got there, you didn't just go home and sit and observe. You went there and got immersed. Um, you were arrested. Why? I went. Uh, we had we had two options, right, well, in terms of that. So I knew a lot of the media who were coming there because I lived in New York for 10 years and had done organizing. So they were calling. And one, one of the things I've learned is that when King goes to Watts, right, and I'm not saying I'm Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. uh, but when King goes to Watts, he does a press conference in the hangar as soon as he gets off the plane. So by the t- and so you have to think in 1960, Watts is 64, right? Yeah. Uh, if King is, if you're a black person is going to be on TV in 1964, the black community is watching. So by the time King gets to Watts, they are pissed. Right? And I was like, oh, he shouldn't have done no interview. Right? He should have waited. Why? Because he needed to get a sense of, and at, at one level, I believe, a permission from the people, right? So, right, or at least to be in conversation with the people to be like, look, y'all know I got to play this game I play. So I'm, I'm going to do that. But please know I'm not, I'm accountable to you and that kind of thing. And so when I got to Ferguson, I wouldn't do interviews for the first week or so. Mm-hmm. But four days in, I think I did an interview, and it was just happened. I happened to be walking out, and somebody was an uh, interviewer grabbed me. But so I, as part of you understanding Dr. King, um, his mistakes, his journey, the um, realities of what he has to navigate, right? Yeah. One of playing a game, yeah. understanding how the rules are played, the game is played, mm-hmm. progress is made. And the other reality is, is that you're accountable to community that operates differently. Yeah. And so you delaying interviews was in respect to local voice. Was and it, yeah, it was in respect to local voice. But I also I needed to know who the players was. I needed to have a sense of what was happening on the ground, how the police was moving, and that kind of thing. Because it, the, still in those first two weeks is still pretty volatile in terms of you know the new organizations emerging, national people are descending on. And I think my first kind of major interview was on Democracy Now! And it became clear to me that my role, in addition to training people, but what that I I understood and other organizers understood, my role was to be a bit of a spokesperson. And I'm saying that in, in, air, quotes. in air quotes, not not as a leader, but somebody needed to be able to beat back the narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. And so even like, you know, I said earlier, even when I disagreed with young people, right, when I thought they were wrong, I don't think you, this is a bad move. Uh, I my job was to defend them. Right. So the night of the non-indictment, the uh, I started doing interviews at four in the morning. I did 48 interviews in 24 hours. Wow. And, you know, I wasn't even talking about them buildings. They were like, well, Reverend Saker, what do you think about the property destruction? I said, well, democracy is on fire. There mm-hmm. was an indictment last night. It was an indictment of democracy. right? I want to kind of keep track 
of what is at stake for these young folks and that kind of thing. And that uh, the other piece is the only, you know, people quite honestly thought I had a lot more influence over young folks than I actually did. My relationship was uh, 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 tenuous at best. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think this might be an important point mm. in that sometimes we can get caught up in, in action and miss the purpose or the mm. reason or the bigger issue. Mm-hmm. And that's really what you were trying to do is to bring it back. Like you could easily spin this being around them burning down buildings and miss the mm. indictment mm. Um, and the issue that we're really trying to challenge. here. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, going back to the arrest, so mm. there was an article about praying while black. Yes. That. So what can you share anything? I don't know what what you can share. I, what you I'm fine. I, I, I beat that case. OK, well, let's and talk I about the it. case you beat. <laughs> <laughs> Double Jeopardy is a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, that's so, it. no, that we had mm-hmm. gone out. So a group of, we have been kind of pushing clergy to come out. Right. Uh, which for me included a lot of profanity laced conversations with other clergy. Cause I was like, I don't care what your, they're, they're attacking our children. Yeah. And we defend them. That's everything else is secondary. Uh, and so that particular night, uh, a guy named uh, David Girth, who runs MCU, Metropolitan Congregations United, which is a Gamaliel organization, which initially decided they voted not to come into the street. But David had pushed a group of clergy he had worked with, kind of the progressive edges of clergy, and uh, which, you know, which is largely going to be women, uh, to come out. So the night that they decided to come out and support the young people, it was a small group standing, you know, at the police station. Uh, and so we came out, we prayed, and, you know, we do what we do. And then the young people asked us to step back. They said, we're about to do civil disobedience. And I knew most of them in that crowd hadn't been trained. And I was like, okay, we'll get out their way. And then the police started coming. They started lining up, right? And they would do this thing. They would wait till the media left where they would, then they would hurt people. So the police started lining up and at least one or two of them got those long wooden bullet clubs that looked like South Africa to me. So I'm like, hey, this is when I smoke. The young people say to me, I see the young, I see them coming with those billy clubs and all the young folks have asked us to stand away. I was like, they're not ready. And I don't think they, they, I, I'd rather absorb this beating than them. Mm. So I went, darted out and kneeled down and prayed, right? I didn't know what else to do, right? So they hurt, you know, they promptly and unceremoniously picked me up and threw me in the back of a blood-stained car. So they had beat someone. And they were, and so I'm in the back of a bloodstained uh, police van, right? But they were so hastily putting me in the van that they didn't frisk me, so I had my phone. So I took pictures and that kind of thing. And the young people wouldn't leave. They said, we're not leaving until you give us our preacher back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, uh, and, and that's the night I was born again that there was something about these young folks saying, we're not going to leave until you give us our preacher back. Mm-hmm. And so that for me, bonded me with them in a different, in, in a sense of their defense of me. Uh, and, and, and then they open up space for me to kind of reclaim parts of my radical self that I had subdued in the context of being a pastor in the context of trying to, uh, you know, minister to more conservative congregations and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so for uh so yeah, so and then I went on trial for that. So I think it was a two day trial. My first record had just come out, had come out in January. I go in trial on February. We're con- we're sure I'm going to jail. Like there's no question because I did it. Right? We're sure I'm going to jail. Uh the label management is like, you know, we got we got to hold this touring up, so we can't do any touring for the record, which would probably hurt our uh, probably hurt our sales because we couldn't tour at that time. So I went, uh, and I um, and I had a great lawyer, uh, Gerald Christmas, and we beat the case. They deliberated twenty minutes, wow, and uh, beat the case. Uh, and then subsequently other because we and my conversation with my mentors with you know Harry Belafonte and Danny Glover and Cornell West the folks that I seek guidance from and my godfather at the time uh, who was alive at the time Avon Rollins there who came out of SNCC uh, as well as in Keiki Ajanaku and others were like if you can get a bump right so me going on trial was a was a, a political decision that if I could get a bump politically to people to pay attention then it was important so it was risk me going to jail plus I enough mentors had done time because mm-hmm. we knew if I go to jail I was going to go to solitary because I was going to organize in jail interesting and so, so SNCC is a student nonviolent coordinating, coordinating committee, committee for yeah, folks so, that don't know yeah so they knew we knew I was going to organize when I go to jail so I would probably be in the hole and so I had actually been walked through about how to do 30 days in the hole so when um, you talked about the young people that kind of brought out parts of you that were subdued mm-hmm. and I've had a chance to read and then hear you talk a, a little bit about your grandmother and what she taught you. Mm-hmm. Will you share that story? Well, you know, my I was so my grandmother got me when she was 55 years old. I was six months old. My father took me from my mother, who was an alcoholic uh, and had me raised by the woman who raised him, who was not his biological mother. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Uh, my biological grandparents, R.B. Brezelman and Perse- uh, Millie Purcell, were college educated. Uh, Millie dies from complications of my father's birth. My R.B. Brezelman, her husband, my grandfather, marries Houston Cannon, who was one of Millie's students. So she uh, and she brings a child to this uh, f- uh, relationship, McKinley. And so she breastfed McKinley and my father together. She died. He dies. And then she remarries a man named Coon Lucas. He was so light skinned that white folks called him Coon as a racial slur to distinguish him from the white light Lucases. Right. But the house that I came to as a child was a uh, plantation house that Coon inherited from. So our pigsties where the slaves used to live. And so I was raised in this initially in this plantation house with just me, my grandfather, and this old man. Because he was so old when I met him, right? When I, I just remember an old man in a chair. He died, and then my grandmother subsequently married a man named James Thomas, who was an elder in the Church of God in Christ. And so those are the two people who ultimately raised me. Uh, and so... So at one level, it's just a, a, a gift and a generosity that I experienced be, even before I knew myself mm-hmm. uh, between, you know, these folks who loved me and cared for me. And I mentioned earlier, you know, Miss Roberta, who couldn't write her name, but who taught me to be an intellectual. Come here and read to me because my grandmother taught me to read at four. I could comprehend by six. And so I would read her mail to her about, no, they want to take your land. 
don't sell the right. So there was a way in which my smartness was always connected in service to people. So the worst spanking I ever got was about me saying that I was too good to play with some other kids mm-hmm. um, uh, who were poorer than us. And so the there, there was a way there was a way in which they moved in the world. So my grandmother wasn't a a rah rah activist, right? Now she did carry a pistol in her purse, <laughs> and white folks where I'm from feared her, right? They did, and I never under I I figured it out. My uncle was like, "Well, you know, she carried a pistol in her purse uh, because her, RB had taught her how to shoot." Her uh, husband. I taught her how to shoot. And so she carried a pistol in her first. She didn't play. She would actually, uh, in the South at that time, the way white folks would in uh, in uh, uh, kind of neuter people's relationships with them, they refer to older black people as auntie and uncle. So my grandmother would spank her children if she heard that somebody called her auntie and she didn't, and they didn't correct them. Mm-hmm. Her name was Miss Houston. Right. And so there was a, way, so that, and so that's, that's, so before I am conscious of who they are, this is the water I'm swimming in. And so, um, and one of those instances was, I think you were referring to the first time I heard the word nigger. So, uh, we, our little temperamental washing machine had gone out, and so we had to go to uh, washing uh, uh, a laundromat that buttresses a trailer park. Mm-hmm. We walk in, there's a young white couple, uh, one young white woman and her child there. And as soon as we walk in, I assume a kid with his mama playing with his toys, and I'm with my mama, and I'm playing with my toys. We finna have us a good time. So when he sees me, he says, um... Uh, Mommy, mommy, look at the niggers, look at the niggers, look at the niggers. I had never heard the word before, but I could tell from the way my grandmother responded that it was a bad word. So I started to cry. And she kind of snatched my arm and said, hush up, boy. I didn't let them run over us when they was lynching us, and I'm not going to start now. And so the mother comes up and says, oh, oh, you know how kids are. You know, she says, no, you taught them that. And that was the conversation that ended. So me and the boy kind of played around each other. And then the woman begins to cry. She's got a big bag of clothes still. It's clear she doesn't have, she's run out of money and washing powders. My grandmother walks over to her, gives her $10 roll of quarters, and gives her a brand new box of washing powders. And on the way out, she says to me, boy, we speak truth with grace. And it's like, yes, ma'am. I think... Well, I know rather that, that that has been my philosophical orientation as an organizer. How do we speak? And it's not that I've always been good at it, mm-hmm. but the thing that I'm right, I'm, a, I'm always aspiring to the greatness that raised me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm aspiring to what does it mean to kind of speak truth to, with grace, to be kind uh, and loving uh, even when we're in disagreement. This is not to say don't be in spaces that you're not safe. This is not to say that we need to conjole white supremacists or anything of that nature. But it is to say, how do we speak truth with grace? Because it begins with an acknowledgement of our own frailty as humans. Yeah, and is that uh, is that a piece of how you um, teach nonviolent uh, activism? I mean, yeah, I think a lot of time. one of the things is that uh, the way in which... Uh, the righteous 
you know, those right. of us, all right, uh-huh. uh, you know, we know everything. We got the right analysis. Uh, we got the right words. We know, we know all the right pronouns. We know the, the latest terms that are necessary to engage in social justice spaces. Uh, can actually be unkind spaces. They can be unkind that we can create a threshold that's too high. Right. And I'm not saying particularly for queer folks or for, or, or, uh, uh, non, uh, gender conforming folks who, I'm not saying they need to subject themselves to the arbitrary violence and the arbitrary meanness. I'm not saying so if you don't feel space safe in those spaces, I get that. That's not what I'm saying. But we're creating conditions that exclude because we're we're making it seem like we have it figured out. Well, I think that also is that we just create a threshold. So you got to know all the right pronouns, all uh, the the the. Politically correct everything. They in got order a lot to... of traffic in the in the in the, in, the, in the, mostly academic jargon as it relates to social movement space. You got to have all the kind of some amorphous agreed upon sets of ideas that if I'm a poor working class person, I just don't understand, right? Because I ain't had time to do that. I'm feeding babies. I'm going to work, right? I don't have the luxury, right? To at one level, there's a certain luxury to be a professional organizer and to get paid for it, and so I don't have that luxury. Now, that luxury is predicated on my suffering, though. Right? It's predicated on so the vast majority of people killed by the police are poor and black. So poor black folks who won't feel welcome in our organizing spaces. The reason why we got the funding anyway. Right. Because there was an uprising associated with that poor black body in the street because I got a fancy degree and I know how to talk the way they taught me to talk at the fancy school that I went to. I get access to the grant money and to the resources while I have distance from the very people and if not at times disdain from the very people who created the opportunity for me to be here. And so I think that, so for me, I, in organizing spaces, you know, we want to give people a range of things they can do. Like, so a lot of times we shame people from not being frontline people, mm-hmm. right? I push clergy to be frontline people in part because they like to stand up in front of crowds. So to stand up in front of a tank, right? I push them, right? Cause you know, they always talk about Jesus and you know, but, but there, you know, I think Nietzsche reminds us that there, or Nietzsche or Kierkegaard reminds us that there's no Easter without Good Friday. Right? So you gotta, you're gonna have to come to that cross at some point. I know we're avoiding it. But there are ways in which you can do, you can be speaking truth to grace to people like, so there's a, a woman in Charlottesville, this lady, 98, I believe. So she comes up, she says, Reverend, now when I get arrested, do I uh, I got do I keep my bail money in my bosom on me, or do I? And so I'm thinking to myself, you ninety, you not gonna, I'm not gonna let you go get arrested. So I'm looking at our kids, like, what are you doing? They said we can't do nothing with her, right? I said, well, I said, mother, we already got bail money. She's well, that's for the young people. I said, well, how about this, mother? Uh, what you like to cook? Oh, I love to cook this. And I said, well, why don't you cook for them? Right. So when they come on out, they have something to eat. She said, I think I can do that. Right. That right. So so people can cook for people who are protesting. You can do jail support. You can be a, you can be a legal observer. You can do you know, if you if you're an elite and you can call a judge who goes to your congregation and say, let them babies out. 
So there's a way in which there's uh, that because that, nonviolent militant nonviolent civil disobedience is uh is is multi layered. And that that takes a multiplicity of skills and resources. Somebody needs to be running the back end. Somebody needs to be calling somebody, the mamas, and telling you, well, your baby in jail now, or husbands or family members, right? Do they have their medicine? How do we get their medicine to? So there are a range, right, of ways in which people can kind of plug in to the direct action. And so I want to keep track of that because it takes a multiplicity of forces necessary uh, in order to just make a simple, uh, uh, to make an action uh, be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things is that has been that we've been, I've been thinking through is the way in which, because people are in such crisis, and particularly if you're coming from. Um, queer communities where you've been put out of your family, there's no place for you to worship uh, and gather, that there's actually a lack of ritual. You don't get a chance to do ritual every day. And so because you don't get a chance to do ritual, the movement becomes your ritual-making space. So it stops being about a target. It's like, oh, we did this dope protest, but you ain't getting nothing out of it. But it's about that. It's the it is really about the ritual itself because people don't have ritual in their lives. And then I think the other challenge in movement spaces is that um, there is a lack of uh, 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 that, that that the movement spe- that there needs to be a distinction made between movement space and therapeutic space. Right. So the movement space. Right. So I have to be safe in the movement space. In or, right, in, and I'm not saying be in places you're harm. I'm just saying, but yeah. we can't get no work done because I'm worried about your goddamn feelings. For a lot of the organizers, and particularly if they're queer, they were on the edges of their own communities. And, and so mm-hmm. if they're on the edges of their own communities, right, one, they're not pulling upon the cultural resources of those communities, right? Like, right, so so my, my grandmom and them know about existential about legislative defeats but existential victories mm. right so they say stuff like this joy that i have the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away right that's a that's a disposition to the world so right if and so if you a young person and you ain't got that weight you ain't got that anchor on you you just hear it kind of floating out you ain't got no covering you're like an orange without a peel right so and if you squeeze it too hard it's gonna get all over you i am responsible to the people like right, that, I have a more. I have a responsibility to those people, uh, and there are certain ways I'm going to engage in the world because I have a responsibility to them. Now, if you weren't trained that way as an organizer and you haven't seen it modeled, it becomes increasingly difficult. So I'm not saying the only reason I ain't sold out, I ain't been given an opportunity because <laughs> I don't get invited to the sellout meetings, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But but it's because I've been dis. I, I have a disposition by virtue of who raised me politically. Right. And, and the, the people that mentored you, right? Like, mm-hmm. so you're rooted in people that have lived through some stuff, that have had some victories. And I don't, because I haven't, like, as a straight black boy in the church who talked pretty good, right? I have a different relationship to the church. I was affirmed. Yeah. And, and in movement spaces, I've always been affirmed. But also, I think about Sepna Clark. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, who ran the Freedom School, the Freedom Citizen Schools, School, yeah. and Dorothy Cotton, mm-hmm. uh, who I actually went, who took me to Palestine. Did she really? So, Man, she is something. I've had a chance to sit with yeah, her. Yeah, you know, of she times. passed a few. Uh, about a year, yeah. So, uh-huh. oh, funny. Well, this is how we got in Palestine. So she's in a wheelchair. So 
So we roll up to the uh, uh, customs to get in the pal- in the to get in the, uh, to Israel, and they said, "What are you here for?" I was like, "To, uh, to see Jesus." <laughs> they said, "Where are you going?" I said, "Wherever Jesus was." I'm so glad my mama lived long enough so I could bring her where my Lord and Savior was. Where are you gonna go? Wherever Jesus was. We're going to go to Bethlehem. We're going to go to Nazareth. I'm just so happy to be with my Lord and Savior. They said, come on in. (laughs) That's awesome. And then on the way out, they was like, where did you go? Wherever my Lord was. (laughs) Come on. That's that's great. And why did you focus on the faith community in your training? And and how many people have you trained? So we've trained through the Deep Abiding Love Project. Uh, So I'm at one level, just a front-facing part of it uh there partic- uh, a woman named uh, Gretchen Hunhold and uh Elizabeth Pendgett are really the people who are carrying the infrastructure as well as we work with a, a woman named Leslie McFadden uh and Cola Masters and also here a guy named Thomas Hood that we've worked with to do tra- uh, to do training Thomas does um he's a medic so he trains people on how to like do triage on the ground so typically well, one, like my first name is Reverend. So, right, so I'm in the fraternity, and I mean that as fraternity, right? And so there's a way in which I can enter in religious spaces, particularly I'm third generation in the Church of God in Christ. There's a way in which I can enter in religious spaces with a certain set of privileges, right, that my queer and women counterparts can't, you know, can't do, right? Uh, and so because I am a son of the church, I, I traffic in the language. I know the discourse. There's a certain set of epistles. Like, for instance, in the foundation world, there's a certain set of epistemological framework, uh, framework that you have just from being in the foundation world. Right. There's a language that you use. There's a certain set of uh, 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 dialogical assumptions. Right. So as a child of the black church, I just know the discourse. Right. Uh, the other is typically when there's been an uprising, we, I get called in by clergy, right, to train them. Uh, but also they think I got some special power with young people, which I don't. It's just that I'm just out there. Right. So it's not like I don't have any spe- special contact. I'm just out there. I'm going to defend them even when I think they're wrong. Right. I'm going to curse them out at my dinner table. Right. But I am going to break bread with them. Uh, but I, and so, so, so they, uh, cities will call me in, uh, we don't go anywhere, we're not invited. And so they'll call us in to do the work. And in doing that work, I think, also, I still think clergy matter because I think that's where our people are. I think the vast majority, you can't organize black and brown people in the United States and not deal with some form of religious institution. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just because that's where people live. You know, in terms of their interior lives and that kind of thing. And I love the church. I love the tradition. I'm, se- I'm second only to James Baldwin as his most critical son. Do you, um, you talk about we don't need, I can't remember what you said, but that we essentially, we need freedom fighters. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think in, in the thread of the conversation, we might have an image of who that is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and through my listening, it, it, it seems like there's a place for everyone. Yes. Even if they're not polished yeah. on the issues, yeah. there's a place and space for everyone yes. to be involved with freedom fighting. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm quoting the great Ruby Sales, uh, SNCC activist, uh, who says that we don't need allies, we need freedom fighters, particularly talking to white folks, right? The white folks need to have 
a, 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 a relationship to movement work that is not about neither guilt nor to, uh, uh, tokenism, right? It's the way, so I frame it this way, until white people believe that they left their son in the street for four and a half hours, or that their 12-year-old was shot in a matter of seconds playing with a BB gun in a park in Cleveland, right? Or that their daughter was in jail and then all of a sudden hung themselves, Right until they believe that, that like that, that that has to be that kind of existential and uh, that is not just simply imp empathy, but that, that there's something that grieves their spirit about the suffering and the misery of, of people who do uh, who do not matter. We don't get any change. I think the other piece is that you know. So I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was actually in a room with a group of funders recently, and 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 I said to them. Do you trust poor people? I mean, you trust them when they cooking that good barbecue you eating, right? You trust them when you listen to Stax music, right? Because Stax is not Motown. Stax, that's working class, black poor music. The great Isaac Hayes, you know, was organizing with the Knights in South Memphis before he became a musician. He organized in what Marx would call the black lump and proletariat, right? That so do you trust poor people? So you trust them to listen to their music, their dances, their juke joints. When you come and do, when you bring your friends to do tourism, and you take them to all their places, so you trust them then. And that their cultural habits have enriched your life. Black elites not cooking good barbecue like they do over at the hole in the wall, right? So the issue is that we are already encountering poor people. We're already uh, benefiting from their cultural habits and practices. So do we trust them enough to give them the resources in order to claim out and carve out their own destiny? Because I think one of the challenges that this election has revealed to us, particularly those of us who supported Sanders and supported Warren, the distance between the professional organizing classes, uh, electoral choices, and the choices of the people are vast. Right. The difference is vast. Right. The distance is vast and the difference is grave. Mm. Right. And so somewhere between. So. So how do we. So what have we done to create the space where our people believe that the revolutionary option is not only viable, but that is winnable? Right, because black voters are making pragmatic choices predicated as, man, them white folk not going to do that. Let me just go on over and give me a little Biden and see if we can get him out of here to get Trump out of here. Right. That's what that's what's at work. They're making certain these are these are sophisticated political decisions that they're making based on the history as it relates to the American electoral process. And so how do we convince that? So that's about lowering the threshold to enter into organizing space. That's about engaging everyday people and being in relationship in such a way that is not about us bringing something to them because something can happen to us. Right, there's something something happens. I, I, I recently joined a church. I go every Sunday, which most of my friends don't believe, because usually don't go to church unless I'm preaching. <laughs> but I just joined a church with this black woman preacher named Reverend Gina Stewart, who's a preaching machine. But it's interesting to me is that in this congregation, poor black, poor working class women bringing their teenage boys to church to hear this black woman preach. Right, that in our congregation they're cafeteria workers. Right. Um, that, that and so and, and so it says to me, and so something happens to me when I am with them. 
So it's not like I am bring. It's not about me simply bringing. And it's not an evangelical model. I'm not saving them. So my granddaddy used to pray this prayer. He says, Lord, I don't want you to come and do nothing. I just want to be where you're already working. And so there, there's a thing where there's something at work in the, and I'm not, I'm not fetishizing them, right? The Grace Lee Boggs used to chastise me for fetishizing the poor. I'm not fetishizing. They're capable of homophobia and misogyny, and they're capable of being backwards and wrong and out of pocket and all of that. But I am saying that there is something there in their wisdom of living. That we actually can be, so it's not about us meeting the people where they are and bringing them along. No, the people, like, you can walk in any beauty shop and barbershop around in, in, in North uh, Minneapolis right now, and they got every answer to every political problem we got. And they can fix it. True that. Right. And so the question is, how are we encountering them and that that encounter is also, we create a space where we're transformed as well. You remember in the Bible, there's a, there's a woman who come to talk to Jesus and Jesus basically tells her, you, you know, you, you basically a dog according to the hierarchy. You basically a dog. And so the woman responds to Jesus and says, even dogs get crumbs from the master's table. Jesus has changed in that encounter. Jesus said, oh, okay. Your sins is forgiven. <laughs> All right, but you understand what I'm saying. What yeah. What are the ways that we encounter the people who society considers as less than dogs? Mm -hmm. Do you have uh, other advice um, for folks in philanthropy about how they should be thinking about uh, funding? How they should be thinking about learning? Well, I think there. You know, I mean, I got a lot to say about having had to deal with philanthropists right in my life. Uh, it has been a couple things. One is. At one level, I want to say, give them the money and get out the way, right? In 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 in, in this sense, right? Typically, the way liberal foundations function, and not, right, is that they expect you to have been doing something for two or three years, and then they're gonna give you a little money to do it, right? And then maybe give you a two-year renewal and be done. And what we've been dealing with in the last 50 years since a meeting at Brown Bob Jones University with the right wing making a serious decision that they're going to build think tanks, universities, and they're going to create a pipeline to seize power. That's what we this, what we see in the White House right now is 50 years of work. This is right. So Steve Bannon, Miller, all of them are coming out of a pipeline that is a, that, that these conservative pipelines, these gatherings and that kind of thing. Right. And so, and, and so, but they were, but they were making investments in long term work. They were looking at the long game. So how can foundations think about what kind of infrastructures can we build that are necessary to beat back this moment? So we're talking about a, a, a long game. Mm -hmm. And we're that, not talking about beating back the GOP. We're talking about beating back what? We're talking about beating back fascism and Nazism, right? We, now, you know, I, Prior to now, the left, we'd be, uh, you know, we'd be, we like to throw the word Nazi and everybody was a fascist around, really. Well, no, we're clear now that we got Nazis and Nazi sympathizers in the highest levels of government in the United States. There's no debate about that now, right? Uh, um, and so when we think about beating back uh, the level of vitriol and, uh, and, and what I would call the spirit, 
of this age, right? Because one of the things that we're wrestling with since 2008 is what I would call a zeitgeist der angst, the spirit of the age of angst. Mm -hmm. And what language is that? The German. So okay. the Germans have a wonderful, you know, these wonderfully long words. So zeitgeist, spirit of the age uh, of angst. Angst is that wonderful German phrase that cannot be encapsulated in English. It's this, this uneasiness of the soul. And so, so we got this spirit of age of angst, right? So everybody's anxious in part because of the economic crisis and that kind of thing. And, the, and, and so long-term steady is the only thing that beats that, right? And so I would say that how you think about funding long-term, what is, and also in terms of funding long-term is that how are you funding base building? Because one of the challenges, right, is that we've, uh, that base building work is not the priority. Right. And so meaning that, like, how, how are you gathering groups of people together and building their capacity to speak their own special truth to the world? And the results may not happen in immediately. May not happen. They may not happen immediately, but sometimes you get surprised. Right. Sure. Um, um, uh, do you all you remember in mid 2000s, there was a the first major immigration march, about a million people in the street. You, you all remember this? There was like a million people marched. Mm -hmm. uh, in the mid, it may have been 2004, 2005, because it's the height of the Iraq war. Yep. That happened because somebody organized Latino radio stations. Somebody went to the DJs and said, hey, we're about to do this. Can you help publicize it, right? So funders are not weren't thinking about that. They did, because the issue is that the, the Latino DJs had a natural constituency that people took them seriously. They could turn people out uh, to buy things or to parties and that kind of thing. So, well, can we turn them out to protest? So, what are the ways in which you're supporting base building, and what are the ways in which you which you're funding uh, already pre-existing organizing structures inside communities? Sure. And anything, um, as, as we get ready to close, that you have to say to our, our Jewish or our Muslim brothers and sisters about I, what's happening today? I mean, well, I think one of the challenges as we think about the level of, uh, that, that the same people who hate Jews are the same people who hate Muslims, right? So in Charlottesville, we received more uh, clergy, which predominantly were Christian, even though there were a, a few Jewish folk out there is that we receive more anti-Semitic and anti-homophobic slurs at us than we did racial slurs, mm. right? And so in terms of the anti-Semitism and Islamophobia that is coming from the same forces, right? Uh, the other piece is that there is a, in particularly in the United States and other parts of the world, but particularly in the United States, that there's a fear both in mosques and synagogues, right? Which 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 will make you want to keep your head low, right? And you know, uh, uh, make you want to cower in the face of that. And so, I would encourage folks to stand in solidarity with people because one of the because the issues that what you just described, what you raising about uh, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, the challenges to Muslim communities and Jewish communities, the Christians are the problems. In both of those instances, right? Say more. Say why? Well, you know, when you think about the history, every country that's claimed to be Christian in the history of the world has had pogroms, right? That's that's like everyone, right? If they say they're a Christian civilization, they attack Jewish brothers and sisters. 
And so, and, and, you know, so, you know, particularly this, uh, you know, a lot of the anti-Semitic stuff that comes out of preaching, right? The Jews. Um, that's, uh, in terms of the newer trans, uh, the translation coming, particularly in the King James, right? There's a deep anti-Semitism ingrained in the text. Uh, and that, and that, and, and then the whole language of, you know, the foolishness y'all had here that they were doing Sharia law. Uh, in one of the housing complex over by Seward, right? And uh, and and those are Christians. So the so part and parcel is that why Jewish brothers and sisters and, uh, uh, and and Muslim folk are trying to make some sense, right, of what it means to live in this particular moment inside the American empire, where vitriol and physical violence is increasing, is the challenge of Christians to stand up and be in solidarity with them and to defend them. Right to care for the orphan and the widow, to care for the mo the least of these, uh, and those who suffer uh, uh, in ways uh, that represent the worst of American democracy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was trying to get you to, to like speak in like <clears throat> he's got all these languages inside. Of him. I can't remember the words you said earlier, and I don't even know what languages you were speaking. But mm. um, anything that um, I haven't asked you that you want to share um, as we close? I do think that religion does have a significant role to play. And do you think uh, do you think the faith communities are standing in the power that they actually hold in this moment? You know, at, at one level, religion is as religion does, to quote that great philosopher Forrest Gump. <laughs> is, um, there, you know, like there are those of us who are part of what we would call the prophetic tradition, right? Uh, the, the kind of progressive edges of religious tradition. So, there, uh, so we are actually in many times on the edges of the faith while claiming the heart of it. Right. So we're marginalized uh, in our own religious community, but we claim the heart of our religious tradition. I, I think that there is that there is a power. What well, the Pentecostal in me says, um, that. Something happens when we gather, right? That, 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 you know, in the book of Acts, it talks about when they were gathered in a room on one accord, then the Holy Ghost comes in the room. And that then they begin to speak in languages that other, the, the gathered nations hear. So it's a, 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 uh, that there is a gift in the hearing, right? So what, 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 and religion provides people an opportunity to wrestle in critical ways with their own sense of being, their mortality, with death, dread, and despair. But it also helps you build out community in a different kind of way. And so, you know, like, so at the beginning of all religious Muslim events or, or, or recitations, they're going to say, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I seek refuge in God from the great deceiver, right? So it's acknowledging the darkness, but not letting the darkness have the last word, right? Or among Jewish folks, it's Takum Alam, right? This the idea that we're going to repair the world. That's acknowledging the world that is broken, but we have agency to touch it, right? Uh, in Nido Shoshra and Buddhism, they say, Nam Yori and Geiko. I devote myself to the mystic laws of cause and effect through sound. So it says that I have a, that there's something happening in the world that I'm accountable to, 
Right. And so, or the great Albert Camus who says that the task of the artist is to, uh, the artist must never side with the makers of history, but rather those who are the victims of it. That sounds like Matthew 25, 35 to me. Such what you've done unto the least of these. So you've done that to me. So religion doesn't have a monopoly or no religion has a monopoly on this truth, right? But there is an ethical ground of being. And that religion provides an opportunity at its best for spaces of engagement of community and that kind of thing. And then at a real basic level, and we say this consistently to congregations, when there's a crisis and an uprising in your town, just open your doors and just let them in and love them and feed them and care for them. Uh, and I think it, and, and religious institutions often also are a place of artistic engagement, particularly through song. Mm. And so for me, music has been a way in which to kind of break through some of the contradictions, right? So I've, you know, I've had these right-wingers show up my shows and leave transformed, right? Um, and, 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 and that has more to do with the power of the music, uh, than anything else. And so I, I, I would say lastly, what are the ways in which we're taking seriously the arts? And take seriously artists, not as parenthetic, not as just an add-on to the program, but what are the ways in which art can break us open, right? So when we see the Alvin Ailey dancers, particularly do revelations, right, that something should happen to us, right? Or we see, uh, uh, we hear Aretha Franklin when what she takes respect and transforms it into a feminist anthem, right? Uh, uh, or in the, you know, in, in any church of God in Christ in the United States, you walk in and you hear him do something to that Hammond organ that wasn't supposed to happen to that Hammond organ, right? That there's a way in which the, the, the music and the cultural practices of everyday people might be a bomb, a salve, and might be even to break through some of the misery, uh, and the recalcitrance, the avarice and the greed, uh, that is work, uh, in this particular moment. And I think, uh, if we do that, we might have a fighting chance. Thank you. Thank you. And as we close this episode, please enjoy this music performed by Reverend Sekou and written by Tracy Howe called Bury Me. This is Sue Pak Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda. In the struggle for freedom
Something beautiful is born. 